But today being Palm Sunday, we of course know that we are moving into Holy Week. And it's true that this Palm Sunday is a day of joyful celebration as we too proclaim, Hosanna, God save, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is the day that we celebrate the triumphal entry of Christ into Jerusalem, as we have done with the waving of palm branches. And our students here, I know the Child Child Development Center, I saw them waving palm branches in great procession throughout our facility. And I asked Pastor Brent this morning to be sure that we had plenty of joyful celebration. And I think we did that. Would you agree with that? But we move on from this point. And my research indicates to me that there isn't complete clarity in Scripture as to the actual timeline from the triumphal entry to the arrest of Christ in the garden and the subsequent events of the passion of Christ. We know it was days, and there is even a bit of disparity between the synoptic gospels, which is Matthew, Mark, Luke, as opposed to the gospel of John when it comes to the chronology and sequence of the events of this week. Uh, I say there is that disparity. I will also tell you there are are theologians who can find the congruence depending upon how you look at chronology and sequence. But because we know so well the story of what takes place in the days which follow the triumphal uh, entry, we also know that there is a process of grief that must be walked through. It is not the grief of the loss of a loved one, which many of you are experiencing even now. And please know you have our continuing prayers. I hope you know that. But it is the grief for each one of us that comes from remembering what our sin has done to Christ. And Bethesda, that is the tone that I wish to set for us this morning as we move into Holy Week. The celebration we've experienced this morning was needful. It was right it is the, 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 the thing that we are to do. But now we move into Holy Week. We move into a time that, of great sobriety. We move into a time that is, has certainly a, a weight to it. And one of the songs that should resonate deep within each of us this week is this. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, but he washed it white as snow. Is that a song in your heart today? So I'm going to ask you, if you will, church, to please come with me to the Word today and let us consider what I am referring to as godly grief. Would you say that with me? Uh, This may be, I I have quite a bit of information and I have it hopefully organized. This may be a time you want to get a pencil and paper and pen and paper and write a few notes down. My welcome also to those of you who are watching online. I, uh, I, I want to thank you for your faithfulness in Bethesda and watching online. I know many of you are finding your way back to the local s- service here. I know that many of you are watching from many parts of the country. I get emails and texts and, and communication from so many of you, and I thank you for watching and being a part of our service. I think you found a good place today when you found Bethesda, and we're glad that you have, uh, you, that you have joined us, and thank you for doing that. I will be referring to lots of New Testament scripture today, uh, possibly more than uh, usual, and you might want to pray for our projectionists because I've just absolutely overloaded them today, okay? Uh, Be gracious to them. And I'm going to be making uh, reference to many supplemental passages. They will all be projected on this screen here to my left. 
But for this to all come together, if you would allow me to, uh, it is a lot of information. If you would allow me to, to find my best path at presenting it to you where the, 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 um, the meat of this can be properly communicated to you, I, I'm going to recommend that you stay fixed on our text of 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 8, 9, and 10. Three verses is our text. I'm going to have a lot more than that. But I'm going to recommend that you let me uh, wander you through, and we will have this screen for the other scriptures. But it's important that you have a home base, if you will, in our text of 2 Corinthians chapter 7, the writing of Paul, verses 8, 9, and 10. It's just three verses that I'll be presenting, and the, the three points of this message will come one from each of the three verses. So let me carry you all the way through it, and you stay fixed on that text so that when we need to get back to it, you can get quickly there. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 8, 9, and 10. I read from the ESV this morning. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, Paul says, I do not regret it. Though, though I did regret it, for I see that that letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a... Godly grief. Oh, I didn't even have to cue you today. <laughs> For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. We're going to unpack these three verses, all right? Verse 10. For produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his most holy and infallible word. And the church said, Amen. I'm really asking you to come to the cross today as we move into Holy Week. This may or may not be the first time someone has introduced to you the idea that there is such a thing as godly grief. Maybe you've heard it before, maybe not. I'm going to unpack this in a literally in a verse by verse mode, I, I, and, and I want us to see what these three verses bring out for us to understand as we just approach the text and, and we uh, and we dig in the text and understand it today. The first of the three verses is verse eight, and I read it, but let me repeat it. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. For I see that that letter grieved you, though only for a while. The Apostle Paul is saying to the Corinthians very clearly, I did something that caused you to grieve. And though scholars are not 100% sure, it is generally believed that the letter he's referring to, uh, it's not directly implied, but that, that the letter he's referring to is 1 Corinthians. We're reading 2 Corinthians. It's 1 Corinthians, which he also obviously wrote to the church in Corinth. And then in 2 Corinthians, he's saying, look, I sent you this letter, and at first, I really felt bad because, because it made you, I saw that it made you grieve. But you know what? Now that I think about it, I'm... I'm actually okay that it caused you to grieve because it became a godly grief. And so there's a rather immediate lesson for us from Paul in this particular verse, and it's this. Now, stay with me. We have to learn how to confront sin in others. We have to learn how 
to confront sin in others. This is not easy to digest, and I know that. And I, I'm guessing that if I were to ask this morning, I'm not going to, but if I were to ask this morning for a showing of hands of how many of you really enjoy confrontation, there might be a slight few of you, and I know who you are, and I'll single you out if I need to, who would say, I'm really good at it. I really, I actually enjoy it, but most of you would raise your hand to say that you really hate confrontation. Am I right about that? Now, let's get something straight. We got to understand the difference between judging and confronting. They are not the same thing. Now, we all know Matthew chapter 7 verse 1 says, judge not that you not be judged. God did not call you God did not call me to be judge, jury, and executioner. Did not. Is there an amen? amen. Balcony, do you believe it? Amen. That is clearly not our role. But I do believe that God expects us in the church to confront people with sin. Now, we've got to qualify this a bit, please. We are not handing out license to you today. To those of you who do enjoy finding sin in other people... I know it's your special gift. I know you have a keen sensitivity and understanding of everyone else's sin. I, I get that. You can find it very easily. God's just blessed you with that. We're not giving you license today. I, I, I hope You're going to stay with me here. I hope all of you have someone in your life who I have had who has served as a really quality spiritual mentor to you. If you have not had that, I earnestly um, beseech you to pray and ask God to have that person be in your life. But, but I'm, I'm hoping that you've had, like I've had, someone that when you're with them, you literally soaked up every word they said, and, and you, you felt encouraged, and you, you felt loved by them, and it was a wonderful experience only to go back home and suddenly realize as you are basking in the glory of being with your mentor wait a minute, I think I was just rebuked. <laughs> Has anybody ever had that happen? I have. But when that mentor was rebuking you, you felt love. You felt joy. You felt like that mentor was building you up. And so the challenge to all of us today is that we must master the ability to confront sin or confront issues without leaving that person feeling like they have been trampled to death. I got to have a bigger amen than that. Amen. If you just, uh, sometime recently, Becky and I were in another city and uh, um, at the end of the service, um, a lady came to me and she was just... You know, I had spoken that morning, and she said, <clears throat> she said, oh, I, uh, so you're from Fort Worth? I said, yes. She said, I have a sister that lives in Fort Worth. I said, wonderful. And, um, and she went on to say, she's far from God. She's far from God. I tell you what, Brother Dan, I got on that phone the other day, and I called, and I gave her a piece of my mind. Let her know she's far from God. And in my mind, I went, well, that's going to really win her to Jesus. We have to learn how to confront issues without leaving that person feeling like they have been trampled to death. Let's look at what James says. Let me, let me read it to you. James 5 says, My dear brothers and sisters, if someone among you wanders away from the truth and is brought back 
You can be sure that whoever brings a sinner back from wandering will save that person from death and bring about the forgiveness of many sins. There is a way to confront someone. So the word of God makes it clear that we should confront someone in their sin. However, and this is probably the part you might want to write down, if you are in a position of needing or feeling like you should do that, there are four questions that you should ask yourself before you approach someone in their sin. The first one is this. What is my relationship with that person? What is my relationship with that person? By the way, a little side note. Main points are always up there on the wall. And everything theoretically that I'm trying to give you is related to that point. If you're ever trying to get the dots connected, then the subpoints in scriptures are here. First question would be, what is my relationship with this person? Paul had a relationship with the church of Corinth. He had what we would call relational equity there. Think of it this way. Have you made deposits in that person that gives you the ability to then make a withdrawal from them, as it were? Uh, my staff will be very com- uh, here at Bethesda will be very familiar with a phrase that I use called credibility chips. I literally have seen it as a pile of gold, real pretty gold chips that are kind of off to the side here. And we talk about things that we need to do or things that need to happen. And uh, it's very often in the conversation we're going to say, you know, and I will often tell them, every decision you make and quite often every word you say, you are either, you are either spending credibility chips or you are building up your supply of credibility chips with the people in the church. We talk about, am I right about that, Brent? We talk about that all the time, credibility chips. Are we making a decision, will this cost us credibility or will, be, will be, we be gaining credibility? And there's times you have to do both. But the point is, if you don't have any, if you've made no deposits, if you have no buildup of credibility with that person, you are not, you have no relational equity with them. Because when you confront people, it requires honesty, it requires transparency, it requires vulnerability, all of which come through relationship. The second question you should ask yourself is this, have I received a God directive to do this? Has the Lord told me, has the Holy Spirit prompted you to go and speak to this person? Has the Holy Spirit prompted you to go and confront this person? Is it the Holy Spirit doing it? Is is the Holy Spirit nudging you? And then how is that being confirmed to you? Paul was called by God to lead the church of Corinth. There should be a calling. There should be a directive. There should be a prompting of the Holy Spirit. And let me put it to you this way. You need something beyond just a personal annoyance with that person. You need something beyond just being irritated with that person. Ticked off at whatever they last did. You got to have something more than that to have the right and the ability to confront them about sin. The third question you should ask yourself is this. Have I examined myself? Have I examined my own emotions? And what state I am in? Have I examined my own problems? Have I examined my my motive? Because the scripture is clear on this in Luke chapter 6. I read it to you. And why worry about a speck in your friend's eye? When you have a log in your own, interesting choice of words and metaphor. How can you think of saying, friend, let me help you get rid of that speck in your eye. When you can't see past the log in your own eye. 
And then there's a lovely little word that's thrown in here. It says, hypocrite. First, get rid of the log in your own eye. Then you will see well enough to deal with the speck in your friend's eye. Have you examined yourself first? The fourth thing you should ask yourself is this. If I'm going to confront this person, can I deliver it with grace and truth? This is probably the most important one of the four. Because if you do it with all grace, then you're never going to get to the truth. But if you do it with only truth, they will never receive the truth because you did not apply it with grace. John chapter 1, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the, of the Father, and then describes Jesus by saying, he was And then verse 17 says, for the law was given through Moses, but came through Jesus Christ. Have you noticed it always mentions grace first? There's a reason for that. It always mentions grace first. As a pastor here for many, many years, I've counseled untold numbers of people who came in and felt like it was their God-given purpose on earth to confront any and everybody and to tell any and everybody what they needed to know. And frankly, in most cases, they were right. I'm not saying they were wrong. I, I thought they were right. They were absolutely applying truth. And it was, it was truth as I saw it too. They just lacked the, the ability to lace it with grace. And when you understand these scriptures about grace and truth, always remember grace is mentioned first. Somebody say amen. amen. And the best analogy that I can use today is to say this. Grace is the anesthetic administered before the surgery of truth is delivered. That's good, Pastor Dan. That's really good. Don't know where you found that, but that's really, really, really good. Come on, say it with me. Grace. Was it after or before? Before. It comes first. Before the surgery of truth is delivered. Because if you go into surgery without anesthetic, first of all, it's going to hurt a lot. And it can easily do more harm than the thing that's ailing you in the first place. Here's the reality of what we have in the church today. Some are all truth and no grace. And then there are many who are all grace and no truth. And I have heard it said this way this week. Truth without grace is mean. Grace without truth is meaningless. We must find the balance. We need to find the balance for the church needs godly wisdom to deal with issues and not, not shy away from them, not back away from them, operate in a healthy way with all the believers in Christ in the fellowship. Jude 4 says this. Here's why. For certain individuals whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. Wow. Hmm. They are ungodly people. This is what the word of the Lord says, folks. Who pervert the grace of our God into a license for immorality. God help us. And in so doing, they deny Jesus Christ, 
our only sovereign and Lord. There is sin to be confronted in others, but we must find the balance in how we do it. So in our text that you have open in front of you, 2 Corinthian text, Paul is assumedly referring back to the previous letter of 1 Corinthians that he had written. So let me show you by his example how Paul laced grace with truth. That is an important thing to learn here today. Here's how he started his first letter, 1 Corinthians 1. I always thank my God for you because of his grace given you in Jesus Christ. Grace first, grace first, grace first. Verse 8 says, he will also keep you firm to the end so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Encouragement. Wow, it's going to keep me blameless uh, on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. I'm going to make it all the way to the end. Verse 9, God is faithful who has called you into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. I feel blessed. I feel encouraged. I think that's wonderful. And Paul is saying by his example, listen, before I rebuke you, before I ever challenge you, I want you to know that you are a child of God and there is grace for you. Somebody say hallelujah. But the other shoe's about to drop. Let's watch how he does it. How he laces this, the truth, based upon relationship with a directive by God and full of grace and truth. We get to chapter 3, and here comes the truth part. 1 Corinthians 3, he says, Brothers and sisters, can we talk? I added that part. I could not address you as people who live by the Spirit, but as people who are still worldly, mere infants in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you you weren't ready for it. And indeed, you're still not ready for it. You are still worldly. Do you see how he laced grace with truth? It's an important thing for us to understand and emulate. We must learn how to wisely confront sin in others. Now, that's the first, that's all that's point one, bless your heart, all that's point one. Let's go to the second verse of our text, our 2 Corinthians text that you have hopefully still in front of you. It's verse 9 of chapter 7, 2 Corinthians. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting, for you felt a godly grief. For you felt a, you're laying down on the job, so that you suffered no loss through us. Big point number two says this, godly grief suffers no loss. Listen to me, church. There is no loss in the grief that comes from the Father. You need to think on that a minute. There is loss in the grief which comes from the world. And what Paul is saying is this, when it comes to the kind of grief that I, Paul, will bring to you, the kind of sorrow and grief that I will bring to you, there, uh, there, there is no loss. Now, I, I'm not going to overwhelm you with Greek today, but I do want to just, let's look at grief in the Greek. It's, it's lupeo, lupeo, and it means this, to affect with sadness, to make sorrowful, 
to make one uneasy. That's what, uh, in these scriptures, when the word grief is used, that's what it's, it's lupeo. Paul is teaching us by that, that there is a godly sadness. There is a godly sorrow. There is a godly uneasiness. And actually, if I could give another term to that, it's good grief. So the next time I hear you say, good grief, I know that you've got some godly sadness, godly sorrow, godly uneasiness going on. But if there is a godly grief, if there is a good grief, as if you will, then it must stand to reason that there is also a bad grief, though they can appear to be the same thing. Let's understand the differences between good grief and bad grief. Good grief, godly grief, brings conviction. Bad grief brings shame. We know that conviction comes from God through the Holy Spirit. Jesus said it in this way in John 16, it's best for you that I go away because if I don't, the advocate won't come. If I do go away, then I will send him to you. And when he comes, he He will what? And of God's righteousness and of the coming judgment. Now, if I took a moment here and I ask somebody, anybody here, what the role of the Holy Spirit is, I'm going to kind of guess what most of you might say. I think the first thing most of you would say, oh, he's my comforter. He's my friend. The Holy Spirit is my encourager. He's, he's my helper. And all of that is true. Thank God. But when Jesus describes the Holy Spirit, the first thing he says about the Holy Spirit is he's the one who will convict the world of its sin and of God's righteousness and of the coming judgment. Right click on this word convict. It tells me this, elenko, elenko in the Greek, to convince someone of the truth to cross-examine a witness. Now, that puts a little different slant on this word conviction or convict, and we see it as a negative, a bad thing, or... No, no, the Greek says it's to convince someone of the truth. It's to cross-examine a witness. The Holy Spirit, my friend, comes to convince us of the truth. Now, granted, it often feels like a tug of war going on inside, but can I just make it clear to you, when you feel that tug of war going on inside, it is most often the Holy Spirit convincing you of something. He's trying to convince you of the truth. You are experiencing godly grief because the Holy Spirit is trying to convince you, trying to turn you, trying to show you the truth. And I'm here this morning to say this to you. Conviction is one of God's greatest gifts to us. That may be hard to swallow, but it's the truth. It's not fun. It's not something we like. It's not something that we want to hear sermons about. But without conviction, folks, we are lost. We need conviction. It is a gift from God. And so if conviction is godly or good grief, then let's talk about 
for just a moment, the bad, bad grief, the other kind, shame, because they're so close. I found one theologian who wrote this, both shame and conviction produce a very strong emotional reaction that can result in changed behavior. Let me read that one more time in case she went to sleep on me. Both shame and conviction produce a very strong emotional reaction that can result in changed behavior. But that's why we become so confused on the difference between the two because, because both conviction and shame deal with our behavior. Both conviction and shame deal with our emotions. Therefore, it can often be very difficult to differentiate between conviction and shame. So let me help you. Peter and Judas both sinned. They both denied Jesus. They both rejected Christ. Peter felt conviction. Judas felt shame. The shame of Judas led to his death. The conviction of Peter led to life. That's the difference. We need to understand the difference because the sin was the same, but the response of the individual was different. Selah. Selah. Okay, you won't get all this down because I'm going to say it too fast. Let me help you by giving some of the differences. Conviction is behavior focused. Shame is identity focused. Conviction says, I did something disgusting. Shame says, I am disgusting. Shame leaves you with regret. Conviction leaves you with gratitude and thankfulness. Shame leads you to covering the pain by medicating it, doing something to cover it up. Conviction leads to Jesus removing the pain. That should have been a hallelujah right there. Shame will bring guilt. Conviction will bring hope. Shame is rejection. Conviction is being accepted. Shame says that because I'm flawed, I'm unacceptable. That's what shame says. Conviction is the opposite. It assures you that you are cherished. Shame focuses on how I appear to other people. Conviction focuses on how I appear to God. Testing one, two. That one's extremely important. Because shame is always concerned about what other people think about me. That's what shame is always concerned. Conviction is concerned about what the Holy Spirit thinks about me. Holy Spirit conviction leads you to say, I've sinned in my Father's eyes. Lord, before you and you only have I sinned. Shame will lead you to ask, what will other people say about me when they find out? So one is vertical and one is horizontal. And then... This is the other huge differentiator between shame and conviction. Shame will always cause you to look back. Conviction will always cause you to look forward. Conviction will always thrust you forward. Shame will always pull you back. Shame is about your past. Conviction is about your future. Hebrews 12 says, Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, 
Let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. And then the author of Hebrews shows us what Jesus actually did. Who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. I'm thinking little of the shame. I'm thinking little of my past and my mistakes. And I am pressing on. I'm looking unto Jesus and allowing his conviction to push me back to the cross. Oh, goodness. Let's look at our third and last verse of our text. I hope you're still there. Say, I'm still there, Pastor Dan. 2 Corinthians 7, verse 10, the third of our three. For produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. And here is the third point going up on the wall. Here's what we see. Godly grief produces. I know that's not a complete sentence. Godly grief produces. Produces. And can I just say this to you today? That's really good news. That's really good news. I hope somebody's getting this today. Godly grief, it produces something when we experience the conviction of our Heavenly Father. Conviction from our Father is not coming to stop us. It's not coming to hinder us. It is not coming to pull us back. It's actually coming to produce something in us. It's a manufacturing plant, if you will, that wants to produce something in us, and that something is called godly grief as we go into Holy Week. And conviction produces the most powerful Conviction produces the most powerful, incredible thing on planet earth, and it's called repentance. Repentance is powerfully strong. And where I am asking us all to go, starting with me as we begin this Holy Week, back to the place of repentance. I don't care if you have served God for 40 years or 40 minutes, we all need to come back to the cross. I said we all need to come back to the cross and repent. In the previous verse 9, oh no, he's going back, he's going to go longer. Previous verse 9, Paul said, I was sad. Yeah. I was feeling sorry for you because I knew I made you grieve. But then I realized that I'm not sorry that I wrote you that letter. In fact, I'm glad I wrote you that letter because as verse 9 says, as it is, I rejoice not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into something. You were grieved into what, church? For you felt a... So that you suffered no loss through us. What insight, Paul. Paul says, because you repented, you know what? I'm joyful. I'm joyful. I'm sorry that it hurt, but I'm joyful. Because I know how powerful repentance is. I know how important it is to the believer in Christ. I know what a part of your daily living it needs to be. 
Mark chapter 2 says, tells us Jesus said, I did not come to call the righteous. Not why I came. But I came to call sinners to repentance. It's why he came to earth. It's why we were waving palms today. It's why we celebrate Palm Sunday, for it marks the beginning of Holy Week, whereupon we commemorate the fact that Jesus came to earth to die upon a cross of Calvary. For sinners such as I, such love, such wondrous love, you old timers. And let me let you in on a little secret about yourself. Did you know I know a secret about you? Some of you I know lots of secrets. (laughs) But this one's true of all of you. Because it's also true of me. You're a sinner. And so am I. This past September, we spent the entire month talking about this thing called repentance. And here's what we learned. Repentance is not an emotion. Hard for Pentecostals to believe, but it's not an emotion. Your emotions are not strong enough to withstand repentance. They're not. Repentance is an act of the will. To change your mind and to turn around from the way you are currently headed. If you don't believe you have a sin nature or that we as people have sin nature, just have children. Is there an amen in the house today? Kids, we love you. We really do. If you're a parent, you probably know that there is a word that you never had to teach your child. So you try to teach them the ABCs. You know, we're teaching colors. We're teaching shapes. We're teaching all kinds of wonderful things. But there's one word we have not had to teach either one of our granddaughters. And you know what that word is? No. How many parents had to teach your child to say no? Nobody. And if you're a parent, you probably know that the hardest thing to get your child to say, there's two words, hardest thing to get your child to say is this, I'm sorry. (laughs) Why won't they just say it? I'll tell you why. Because it so goes against the grain of our sin nature to repent. It's hard. It just, everything with us fights it. I just can't make myself do that. It's so opposite of how we think. Our defense, we got that. I can give you my defense. You just sit down. I got it for you. But to tell you I'm sorry, it just goes against everything within me. And here's the difficulty for us as we go into Holy Week, particularly with a focus on repentance. Too often, we focus on what Christ did on the cross, and we dismiss what we must do at the cross. You want to hear that again? Too often, we focus on what Christ did on the cross. You'll come Friday night, you'll come Sunday morning, we'll sing songs about the cross, and I'm just saying what I have to do. I will focus on what Christ did on the cross. But I dare not dismiss what I must do at the cross. Because for you, hear me all the way through, for you and me, it's not enough that Jesus just died on the cross. You and I must repent at the cross. 
If we relish in the cross, but do not repent at the cross, we risk the removal of the cross from our lives. Romans chapter 2 says it this way. Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? used to be a song about that. But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself. Maybe I should read that again. Because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath. You're building up a pile of wrath over here. Storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. Folks, that's what the book says. Dan didn't make that up. God will repay each person according to what they have done. Unrepentance stores up wrath. It's like compounding interest. And when we live our lives with an unrepentant heart, we are storing up wrath. But oh, oh, deep within my soul, there's an oh when we repent. Psalm 103 says, for as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. And as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Hallelujah! Hallelujah! Unrepentance stores up wrath. Repentance removes it. There's an insightful verse. I'm going to close in sometime soon. There's an insightful verse in Matthew chapter 3, verse 8, which says this. Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. What does that say to you and to me? It means you've got to keep doing it. It's that simple. You got to keep doing it. In keeping with in keeping with repentance, you got to keep doing it. It's not a one and done. It's not. It's not when you were ten years old and you went down to the front and prayed the sinner's prayer and got baptized and someone prayed over you and I, and I'm done. I'm glad you did that. That's not the end of your spiritual journey. Not the end of your spiritual walk. This says the way we produce fruit in our lives is by keeping with repentance. If we're trying to fight the battles of our life without repentance, church, if we're trying to fight them without a repentant heart, then we're only fighting half the battle. And the way to repentance is by allowing and asking for the Holy Spirit to convict you. To convict you. Not your spouse, you. Not your kids, you, not your boss, you. Conviction. Conviction. What a wonderful word. I don't know that I've ever looked at it that way before. I think in the past when someone used the word, uses the word conviction, hmm, that might have been at least my inward response, hopefully not my outer response. Today, as we approach 
Holy Week, when I hear the word conviction and I see what it leads to, I see how it draws me to the cross, draws me to a repentant heart, keeping my heart clean, nothing between my soul and the Savior. I'm going to tell you what a wonderful word conviction is. It's a strong word for any day of the year. But particularly as we go into this Holy Week, I'm asking, let's be intentional about intensifying our sensitivity to the conviction of the Holy Spirit within our lives. Would you bow your heads with me, please? Lord, I'm not really sure what the appropriate response is to this message. I leave that in your hands. I have prayed today that you would give wings to my words and that you would penetrate hearts. But I am asking Holy Spirit that you come and brood over us in these couple of minutes that remain. What is it you are convicting me of today? What is it that I need to confess before you? I pray that will be the question within the heart of every person here. No matter when they said yes to you initially, that they understand. They produce fruit by keeping with repentance. So Lord, whatever the Holy Spirit prompts us to do, we will do. Um, I wish I could call us forward and I'm hoping for the day soon when we can feel comfortable doing that, but I can ask I want you to stand if you're saying, Pastor Dan, the Lord is convicting me in this season of time. You don't have to announce it to anybody, but if that's true, would you just stand? If you say, Lord, I, if you say, Pastor Dan, I'm feeling a sense of conviction within my own heart. Thank you. I'll give you a minute. Some of you need to make up your mind. I just thank you for your dynamic work, Holy Spirit. And I thank you that if these folks that are standing are feeling that sense of tug of war within them, that you are working out something for their good within them. You may be recalibrating, realigning, helping them to see something they've not seen before. But I pray in their standing today that it will be an expression of faith that you will look upon kindly today, O Lord fill their hearts with illumination. You will show them the way. This is the way. Walk ye in it. This is what you need to shed and leave behind. You need to not give any more attention to that voice of the enemy that's playing out in your head. That needs to go. Because, Lord, you're going to fill all of their vision. You're going to stop the narratives going on in their head. I pray, Lord, you will give direction, that you will give wisdom. And that in the conviction that we will not see it as you doing something against us, but we will see it as you doing something for us, for the glory of the name of Jesus. And I pray this in Jesus' name. And the church said amen. Everyone standing.